Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, it is great to have you back. How are those vocal cords doing? Oh, it's good to be back. It feels like it's been forever. Uh, Thanks for giving me the week off last week. I barely had a voice, so... To hear me right now is a huge benefit. My voice is back. And um, yeah, I think it's just all this soccer we've been talking about and I've been talking about um, beyond this podcast, but it's all good. I'm good. I was going to say when you opened your mouth and sound came out to give a response, right? sound more than just a croak. <laughs> that was a great yeah. sign and it was really encouraging to me personally. Yeah, I drank the amount of tea and honey I have had in the last <laughs> two weeks is ridiculous, but. I'm here and I'm excited. We're glad you're back. Yeah, as as you said, Jordan, we had Tom Bogert on the show last week filling in for you where we learned the term meat truck in a soccer context, which which was invaluable. I loved even though my tweet misled everybody or just you and Tom, but I really liked it and I can't wait to use it in (laughs) my regular soccer talk. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm just thrilled for that opportunity that we're going to have going forward. Yes, me too. Yes, that does mean we have to wait for Roman Torres to get on the field for the Seattle Sounders, but that could happen soon rather than later. We don't know. Very true. Very true. He's like the epitome of it as well. (laughs) Yeah, Daryl DK, I guess, and Josie Altador are two other guys, so I'm thinking maybe we could use it on... But that might be forcing it just a little bit. Josie, not as much, but DK, maybe. I don't know. Josie has been hitting the weights, man. Yeah, forever. I mean, well, <laughs> yeah, forever, basically. Okay, enough about me trucks, although I really can't talk about that for long enough. We're going to start out today's show with a general discussion of what is wrong with the Los Angeles Galaxy. The Athletics' Sam Stagecall had a piece on it this past week, and then they come out and they lose again to the San Jose Earthquakes 2-1 to one on Saturday night. They're last in the Western Conference. They're down a game in terms of games played, but they're last in the West. They have a losing record under Guillermo Barroso and they have not won a game in their last five. Jordan, we're going to go back and forth on this for you, starting us off. What is wrong with the Los Angeles Galaxy? I looked at both sides of the ball. So I looked offensively and I looked defensively, and then I was like, what is the next factor? So what is something that maybe isn't talked about that maybe is should be talked about for this team uh where do you want me to start why don't you start with the ball okay with the ball i have felt like la galaxy has a lot of good players on the ball if you think about it chicharito's good on the ball pavone's good on the ball joe corona is good on the ball sebastian legette's good on the ball these are all players that I think almost put them in this uh, standstill. So what I was noticing watching the game against the earthquakes and mind you, I did have every intention to go back to a game and watch them when they were kind of flying right after MLS is back and they were getting some wins, but I didn't get to go back to one of those games and really compare and contrast to those, those wins that they got. But the thing that I noticed is say Pavone gets the ball. To me, it feels like everyone else nearly stops and the movement off the ball is at a standstill because of his ability on the ball and because they want to let him be isolated and uh, and they do this with multiple different players. That isolation actually just counteracts 
what it looks like to be a good team who has good movement off the ball. So that's what I really see, Joe, is that it's almost like, okay, you get the ball, go do something cool and crazy, and we'll be waiting to make a reaction once we see if you beat the player or if you don't. Well, one of my points, one of the things that I pulled out from watching the Galaxy is that they move so slowly when they have the ball. And so we talked about that way back when there was, I think, the first El Trafico after MLS is back where the Galaxy beat LAFC. And we talked about how LAFC would take two or three too many touches on each time a player was on the ball. And I said that was a problem. But then you pointed out that that usually comes about after a lack of off-ball movement. We're seeing that now with the Galaxy. I went back and watched not a win for the Galaxy, but last week's loss to the Seattle Sounders after I watched the San Jose game. And the contrast between how the Sounders transitioned into the attack when they're sitting back in their 4-4-2-4-4-1-1 defensive structure. The difference between the Sounders winning the ball and going forward versus the Galaxy winning the ball and going forward in that game or this past week against the San Jose Earthquakes was so distinct and so visible. That's not a sustainable thing if you want to score goals consistently, even in Major League Soccer. You're far better off allowing Jordan Morris to sprint down the left wing than you are taking four or five touches and waiting for the ball to move, waiting for players rather to move around the ball and Mm -hmm. move it forward systematically in possession, which is what the Galaxy, I think, are trying to do. I think they are trying to do that, but... One of the the simplest things you learn as a youth player is pass. And then right after you pass the ball, what ha- tends to happen, right? Defenders tend to, even for a half a second, watch where that pass is going. Hence, your movement after you play the ball can be the most dangerous movement that you have. And I don't see that from LA Galaxy right now. I see a pass and like maybe a walk a couple of steps, maybe a jog, but there is no pass. And like, I'm going to try to beat somebody to a space that I see that has been unoccupied. There's no real, it feels like there's no intent, intention to be that player who sets the, t- I think sets the tone with the movement off the ball. I think there's still a lack of an attacking plan. I watch the galaxy yeah. and when they have the ball high up the field, especially when they have the ball in the final third or in the attacking half, at least. There's little understanding. It seems to me there's little understanding of where the players should be, of when they're supposed to move, of how they're supposed to move, of where they're supposed to move. I mean, against the Sounders, I keep going back to that game. They crossed the ball 34 times. Wow. 34 times. And some of those crosses, most of those crosses were putting your head down and hoping, right? They're trying to cross the ball into Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is so far gone at this point that there's just no reason to be doing that. There's no reason to be crossing the ball into the box 34 times unless those are unless those are maybe cutbacks on the Manchester City zone where they're going to find Chicharito who's moved expertly in the box. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to be doing that. So with that, there's no plan. I also saw that in the middle phase, like that uh, central third of the field. And I saw it a couple times with Chicharito uh, because his movement off the ball, his first move is not typically where he wants the ball. He's trying to uh, um, counter do a counter movement to move a defender away from the space he actually wants to receive the ball. So I saw this time at times, mostly with Felcher on, on that right outside back spot is Chicharito would look to break the line and then try to come back into the, the space that he created centrally in the field and, and Felcher played the wrong ball. And so that to me makes me feel like, okay, there is no plan. Do we want to find Chicharito in behind? Is that, where we think he is most dangerous. Well, okay, then let's 
maybe his run is opposite, right? He comes into the space and then runs in behind. But it doesn't seem like that's where you really want him. You want him to be that target player, lay the ball off, and then have that that spin move as more players join the attack. So I would agree with you. There doesn't seem to be... Uh, it just seems like they're not on the same page, which lacks identity in attacking movements. One more offensive thing before we flip okay. the tables and look at the defensive side of the ball. That My last point is connected to exactly what you just said, and it's that Chicharito is not connected with his teammates. Right. In that game against the Earthquakes, in that loss recently, he had multiple moments where he was looking for the ball in one spot, like you're talking about. And there was one that stands out to me. Sebastian Legette was trying to play the ball. I'm not sure if this is the one we're talking about or not, but it's Sebastian Legette on the ball on the right side. Chicharito makes a run. Legette plays at one spot. Chicharito wanted it in a different spot. I mean, those things are happening over and over again. Yeah. And it's not connected. It's not cohesive. The players are not yet familiar with how to get Chicharito the ball. And maybe that's because they lack the offensive plan. Wait, oh, mm. Jordan, I'm getting a text. Yep, this just in. Jordan Angeli has been named the head coach of the Los oh, Angeles gosh, Galaxy. No. And your press conference is right now. <laughs> Jordan, uh, thank you for, for being available for your press availability. Wow. First of all, congratulations. Yes, and second, how do you get a striker more involved in the attack? Not just Chicharito, but any striker. If you're trying to build an attack using a number nine as the focal point or one of the two major focal points of an attack – I mean, what can the Galaxy do? Because we pointed out the offensive problems, but are there things they can do to remedy them? Yeah, absolutely. And But it all starts in training and how they're training and in trying to work through patterns of play that are things that, that Chicharito likes to do. If he's your big player and you want him to be successful, well, you're going to be able to, you, you need to be able to find him in the places that he feels like he's going to be able to threaten. And since he is disconnected, I think it all starts with, okay, how, how can we make you feel like you're more successful? What, what can we do as a, as a team and then work backwards? So I would have that conversation with him and then try to see, okay, well, can we incorporate some patterns of play in training that then we can replicate on the field? And I feel like Pavone and him have a better connection. When when Pavone's on that left side and and working, he does seem to find the little at least those little like it is still a cross, but those Pavone will drive to the end line and scoop the ball into the the mix where Chicharito has scored many a goals like that. So I think it's trying to figure out how those connections can be better enhanced because it it's not working. And so I would I would say you have to work backwards. Okay, how is this not working? Let's try to put something in play that can because. Th- there's really good pieces there, and they should not be at the last, the bottom of the Western Conference. Absolutely. Well, that is a great answer for your introductory press conference. I well, think, I don't I think, know. I think the press will, will eat that up. I um, retire then. <laughs> flipping over to the defensive side of things, what are you noticing from the Galaxy that's hurting them when they don't have the ball? They seem really spread out. Yeah. The, the gaps in between... So you always think about horizontal and vertical channels of the field. And I feel like the the gaps between their defensive lines, between the the defensive line and the midfield line and the forward line, at times was like 60 yards, which is really difficult for 10 players to defend 60 yards uh, as a unit. And then, so then, then you're in all these 1v1 battles. So if then one player gets beat, 
everybody has to shift. But then also because they're so spread out, the passing lanes into players who are higher on the field are bigger. So the error there that a a team that they're playing against can have, they can pass the ball on five yards of the player who's up front and still be successful because that channel is so big. So um, I think they have to get more compact and, Maybe it starts with just sitting in a mid block, staying tight, staying compact and and working together a little bit. But it's just too spaced out for me. The left side of the of the defensive block. Yeah, the they play a four four two. This is what I focused on for me, though. It's called the Christian Pavon problem, mm. which is not to say that he's not a dangerous player when they have the ball. I think he might be the most dangerous player in the league when he has the ball. Certainly the he's most dangerous so player good. in the galaxy. Right. I mean, he's, oh, my gosh, he's real. Every time he gets the ball, I'm like, wow, we're pretty lucky to watch him play. Yeah, he won't be here for very long. I mean, right? it doesn't seem to me that he'll be here for very long. But when the Galaxy are defending, Pavon is that kind of winger who attacks and is not at all defensive-minded. And so this creates a gap. This is what you're talking about. Christian Pavon will still be higher up the field or he'll have drifted inside. And that leaves Ensua, the left back, almost all alone. And against the Earthquakes, they started to recognize that. The Quakes started to see that and attack 2v1 at Ensua, especially in the second half. So that's another weakness of the block that you can game plan for. Christian Pavone is not likely ever, especially in Major League Soccer, going to be a hardcore, dedicated defensive winger. Right. So not only are they spread sometimes horizontally and vertically, but their weaknesses, specific gaps in specific areas of the Galaxy's defensive block that can be targeted. Which to me, if you're going to play Jonah Dos Santos... In that higher role, which I don't that like. That shouldn't have happened. I don't like it at all. He's a six. He should be a six. He's a good ball winner. He reads and uh, interrupts channels for the other team passing lanes. So uh, he needs to be farther back on the field. So instead, if you're going to play in that four four two block, my thought is defensively, why don't you just shift Dos Santos centrally, there's a little bit of a rotation there. So Pavone can be one of those higher players and not have to have so much defensive responsibility on in that four line, that mid four line that they have there, because, man, that did not work. It did not. It did not work. The Galaxy have things to work on, but we're not seeing it right now. We might see it going forward. There's still time in the season and the the standings this year, especially are so tight that they're not even out of the playoff picture. And again, that's helped by the fact that we're letting an obscene number of teams into the playoffs in the first place. But there is time for the Galaxy. But the things we've talked about today, the things that they need to work on offensively and defensively are so important. And if they don't adjust some things, they're not going to be making the playoffs. Right. My last thing I was talking about X Factor. I just I don't see a leader on this team. Hmm. Like when things don't go right for them. Who are they leaning on? Who's the person that is willing to step up and say this isn't good enough? I don't know who that is on this team. Ouch. That's just honest. Yeah. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying, or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind-the-scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. 
If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Let's move on to happier, happier okay. things. Yay! And that is to me. Yeah, there you go. I like the uh, the infusion of happiness there. <laughs> <laughs> that is FC Dallas and Columbus Crew playing to a 2-2 draw on Saturday. I thought this game was really fun to watch. I enjoyed watching both teams try to play with the ball and have mm-hmm. cohesive ideas, have a cohesive understanding of how they wanted to play. That brought me a lot of joy. And so I think it's it's that alone is reason enough to talk about it on this week's show. Yeah, I agree. It was wild. I mean, the, the second 45 was wild. It's a call and response kind of game. Yeah, that, that format. So FC Dallas opened the scoring. Then the Columbus crew answered back early on in the second half. Then Dallas grabbed another goal. Then Columbus grabbed the game's final goal to even it up at 2-2. But things were open in the second half. Things were open, not necessarily in terms of the space, but in terms of how the teams wanted to play. They were mm-hmm. playing open. They were playing out from the back. They were stepping high to press. Both teams were doing that, not just one team. And that, I think, made it a particularly eye-catching game for me that I especially enjoyed on Saturday. Right. And it's something that you would say a a draw. Okay, well, that's not a game that I, I want to go watch. But there were so many cool things that happened in this game, I thought, from from both on both sides of the ball that were interesting and, and we'll get to. And from my perspective, you know, I'm calling the game and I'm... I was telling you beforehand, Joe, I feel like my eye when I'm calling a game is slightly different than when I'm analyzing a game. So I'm interested to see what you saw first so we can uh, kind of riff off of that. Before I get to that, I'm actually curious because you did say that and I didn't ask you about it. But how do those things differ to give listeners a little bit of insight into how broadcasting works? What are you looking at when you're calling a game and trying to give insight live on the broadcast Versus when you're prepping for this show or for something else? That's really a good question. And I don't know, maybe it's not that different, but to me, it feels different. And maybe it's just that, that it, that it does feel a little bit different. And my intention is a little bit different. I, I'm much more, um, you know, I have all these notes that I'm looking at and I'm uh, referencing about uh, players and how long they've been in the league or how long they've been with a certain team and their goals and their assists and when they last scored. So there's all these things that are also, um, leading to a storyline that is telling the story of this game, as opposed to when I'm watching a game, I can look at certain things. I feel like when I'm watching for this show, I can look at them as like um, just specifically what they're showing me right there. Not like this grandiose story of how it fits in. You don't have to tell as much of a narrative, right? It's not as narrative driven. I guess so. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for indulging me. There. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's the same, but <laughs> it feels different to me. <laughs> well, you're giving me a chance to talk, and so I'm going to take full advantage of okay. that. Perfect. And my first main talking point from this game has to do with the first goal. So this is FC Dallas's first goal of the match, of this 2-2 draw, and it all starts with Matt Hedges, who is a center back, in case our listeners were not already aware, which fills my monthly quota right at the beginning of October of talking Wait, about- Wait, is it only one? I mean, it's one a month. Is that right. it? it should be higher. It fills my my weekly quota on MLS <laughs> okay. assist of talking about a center back. I feel like I haven't done it in a while, and I'm going to bring true. it out in a big way today. Okay. Matt Hedges starts this goal sequence off for FC Dallas. He's the right center back in Lucha Gonzalez's back four. He's the right half of the of the center back pairing, and he's on the ball in Dallas's defensive half. He's pretty far back on the field as well, and he whips he whips a pass forward that finds Franco Hara 
in the attacking half. I mean, this ball covers a lot of ground. I can't tell if it was directly intended for Hara. It might have been intended for Ricarte as that number 10. But the ball works its way low and hard into the attack. And it was going for one of those two players. And they Mm -hmm. were both able to get on the ball. The midfielder just chooses... In that moment, he chooses to leave the ball for the striker. So Hara then gets on the ball, and then Dallas go to work quickly. They move the ball out to Fafa Pico on the far right side of the field, who crosses it in then to Michael Barrios on the back post for the headed finish. All of this sequence, all of this play, this whole goal is made possible by that line-breaking ball from Matt Hedges, and he's doing that better, or, or at least as well, as any defender in Major League Soccer this season. Well, if you look at the way that Dallas plays... They have a route one into Hara and, and he's doing it well because of the way that Ricarte plays and how he kind of opens a gap for, by pulling back a little bit deeper into the midfield, he opens that passing lane to Hara and Hara is really good at holding the ball. He's really good at that. Becoming an option, maybe not winning that ball, but he's going to challenge at least for it. So then within the challenge, if he wins it or not, there's going to be a second ball or a layoff that can be then picked up by somebody else from FC Dallas. That was something they did, um, I thought, was very integral in their plan. Having someone like Matt Hedges who can get the ball forward accurately, not just hitting and hoping, but getting the ball forward low and hard, where it gives Hara and the rest of Dallas's attack a chance to actually work, having a player like that on the back line for Dallas is so important. Mm-hmm. And magnifying this a little bit more, moving up a level from club to country, I'm wondering, yeah, I know Matt Hedges, I think he's 30. I'm wondering, though, is he not in contention to be playing in some of these international games that we're going to start having thick and fast here? I mean, Greg Berhalter is talking about how many different Players are, are going to be needed to make sure that everyone is not overworked during the upcoming international games for the U.S. men's national team. Matt Hedges hasn't really been in that picture, especially recently. But man, the things he can do with the ball are perfect for a possession team. They're perfect for Dallas. They're perfect for what the men's national team wants to be doing with the ball. And I'm wondering if he can hack it defensively and hack it in, in recovery moments in transition when Dallas are stepping back. Can he do those things for the national team? I mean, I'm wondering, why is he not on on the periphery or in the fold for the national team coming up? He might be in the on the periphery. And I think that this season, especially with the amount of games, Dallas has eight games in October. If he can play in all those games and stay healthy and keep Dallas in this progression up the Western Conference, I don't know why he wouldn't be, but... It really is what I'm, what I think of him as those things that you were just saying, like on the ball, yes, but can he hang with the recovery of a fast forward who wants to break in behind and one, read it correctly and two, or chase him down. So that's kind of where I'm like, I don't know, but periphery. Yeah, I think he probably is. I think about the rest of the center backs in the player pool and outside Mm -hmm. of John Brooks playing over in Germany. In Major League Soccer, you've got Aaron Long, and you've kind of got Walker Zimmerman. Those have been the two mainstays. Miles Robinson is working his way up the depth chart. But Aaron Long cannot pass the ball and is not taught to pass the ball with the Red Bulls. That's just the reality. Right. Then you've got Walker Zimmerman, who is okay, I guess, at kind of everything. He does some nice things with the ball. Sometimes he's got a little bit of speed. He's at his most fun when he's moving forward into the attack. But why can't Matt Hedges be in that conversation? That's all I'm starting to ask myself, and I'm curious— Because I think Matt Hedges' overall skill set outweighs certainly what Walker Zimmerman brings 
And while it's yeah. different than Inner and Long, there are a lot of things that I like that Hedges does that really no one else in the domestic center back pool can bring. So that's enough about Matt yeah. Hedges from this game. I want to move forward into more of the goals in this game. In the second okay. half, it starts. The crew are down one to nothing. They get the equalizer. They win the ball in the attacking half, get the ball over to Harrison Offal on the right side, who plays a low cross into the box, finds Mokhtar, who scores at the back post. So then things are even at 1-1. Yeah, well, let's just get another center back in there. Jonathan Mensa wins the head ball at half field, stepping from that that route one ball to Hara, heads it, and then there we go. Starts that second goal from the same side. Eerily similar, I would say, at least in the the place of where it was finished and the buildup on the right side to Dallas's goal as well in the first half. I see Dallas then get their second goal to go up 2-1. to one. This is Harrison Affel wildly bringing down Michael Barrios in the box. And a center back, Rito Ziegler, then steps up to score the penalty. We can do this all day. I can make any <laughs> right. connection to a center back. Yeah. He steps up, scores a fantastic penalty to put FC Dallas up 2-1. to one. I'm still, can I just say, Please. I'm still confused about this because Barrios sees Awful coming. He sees him jump and then Barrios goes into Awful's body. He doesn't even try to challenge for the ball. And so I get what you were saying, right? It was maybe reckless from Harrison Awful, but I think it's intentional from Barrios to take out Awful to make it look like he then was toppling over him. So I don't know. Like, that was a real weird. That was weird. Yeah, you're right about that. Honestly, I did not notice that involvement from Michael Barrios. On Watch that. it crafty. when you. Yeah, if you. It was crafty and. <laughs> For sure helped his team, but Jordan's it was annoying as well. Yeah. I was annoyed. I was annoyed by it. <laughs> then the final goal of this game, it's the Columbus crew getting that equalizer. This starts in my mind with Milton Valenzuela, who is probably one of my two favorite fullbacks in MLS. And the other guy was also playing in this game, just on the other team. But let's start with Valenzuela. He finds Emmanuel Boateng making a run behind the back line. And Valenzuela plays a beautiful low ball that finds Boateng's run perfectly. Boateng then cuts the ball back to the middle of the, the box, the middle of the six-yard box to Pedro Santos, who gets the finish. This goal is what Caleb Porter wants to do. It's the fullback playing a role in chance creation. It's that mm-hmm. winger tucking inside and making a smart run into space behind the back line. It's then that winger playing a beautiful cutback to waiting runners in the box. Zardes and Santos were both in that space ready to receive the ball, and Santos finishes the run, finishes the movement. This is great soccer from the Columbus crew in this moment. Yeah. What I think led up to that was a couple of things, because in the second half, FC Dallas, and they did this a little bit in the first half, but I thought it was a little bit more evident in the second half. They were pushing numbers forward. Both of their outside backs, high into the attack, Hollingshead and Reynolds, uh, at, at times they had all but maybe one player in the attacking third, which yeah. is crazy ridiculous. So when you have that type of aggressive movement, I felt like Columbus counterattack counteracted it by having Luis Diaz on one side, Jossie Zardes, who's fast as well centrally, and then they brought in Emmanuel Boateng, who has that speed more than Yunus Mokhtar, who was subbed for uh, Boateng. So you counteract that saying, okay, we'll defend you. But man, in transition, we're going to go and we're going to break the line. So what I think happened is the crew started breaking that and breaking the line with a quick transition uh, to try to counteract the numbers that were in the attack for Dallas. 
And then the crew did something that I think they're good at is they would get into those spaces and they would regain patience and bring the ball around and create things like you just said, right? That it wasn't just, okay, let's counterattack and try to get a goal as fast as we can. If it's on, great. If it's not, let's keep it and manipulate numbers and try to allow our fullbacks like Valenzuela to get into pockets of space where he can thread those balls through. That mixture of styles, the mixture of possession and aggressive attacking numbers forward makes teams like the crew, and even Dallas can do this as well. Mm -hmm. It makes teams Mm -hmm. who are capable with the ball really hard to stop. And it's hard for other teams that play like them to stop them. Because there's almost like a mutual understanding of what both teams are trying to do. There's understanding from Dallas that they're going to press. The crew are going to try to play out from the back. Then they're going to try to move numbers forward. And there can be a contrast in style sometimes in a game. But just watching these two teams attack to me brought real joy and real entertainment because of what they were doing with the ball. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun game. I'm going to throw out a couple quick hitters here before we move on to our next talking point for this week's show. Number one. Brian Reynolds had to get him in there. His crossing ability stands out to me more and more each game. I don't know if you noticed this, Jordan, calling the game. His ability on the ball at speed in the attacking half is really impressive. This is something I used to talk to um, one of my coaches growing up. We used to talk about the differences in the way players in Europe cross the ball and the way Americans cross the ball. And Reynolds has that European whip to the way he crosses. And sometimes he'll like sacrifice his body. And, and this is the, the difference that we saw. Like when you're, when you're watching games in Europe, you see a lot of times like dribbling to the end line and like trying to get it back across and put so much whip on it. Like the player falls out of bounds. And I feel like Reynolds doesn't have that like, aggressive falling out of bounds and not a lot of players do that anymore but it's that intention of like i'm gonna do everything i can to make sure that this cross is the best thing i can do and allows people in the box to have the best ability to get on the end of it and reynolds does that the texture that he puts on the ball is so inviting for players who are running in the box and it is something that as a player who used to be on the end of those crosses I look and and smile because I would love some of those crosses he's playing in there. (laughs) Quick hitter, number two for me. Pedro Santos can play anywhere. He plays as an eight in the start of this game in the first half, and then Lucas Elrayan goes down with an injury. He moves up front to the number 10 spot alongside Jossi Zardes. And in the past, he's played as a winger. We talked about him as a pocket winger just a couple of episodes ago. Pedro Santos has become a super versatile really effective attacker in a lot of different spaces. And that gives Caleb Porter so many options to work with while he's got guys out with injury. He doesn't technically get an assist in that game against Toronto, the own goal that Mavinga put in. But I mean, it's the ball that then ends up going in. So I'm going to like fudge it a little bit and say that's an assist. He's got a goal or or an assist or a goal and an assist, which we've seen multiple times for him in the last seven games. Yeah. That is, whew, you're cooking with some good oil there, right? Like he's just flying and feeling himself. And he is a player that really feels the game. And I feel like right now he knows where to be at the right times because he's just at the heart. He he feels that pulse of the game so well. To end our Dallas Columbus crew discussion, I want to hit on one tactical point of nerdery. And nerdery. that is nerdery, yeah. And that's how... FC Dallas tried to neutralize Lucas Zellerayan in the first half. Okay. Watching Dallas defend, they were sitting in a 4-2-3-1. 
it looks like for most of that game. Mm-hmm. They're sitting in a 4-2-3-1, and you'd think, okay, well, that probably means that they had Brian Acosta and Tiago Santos, who were their two more defensive-minded midfielders as the double pivot in the 4-2-3-1, and they had Ricarte, who's very much the attacking midfielder, the number 10, playing as an attacking midfielder and a number 10 when they defend. That's not what happened. That's not how Luchi Gonzalez had his defensive structure set up. He had Brian Acosta playing in that number 10 spot, and then he had Andres Ricarte stepping deeper and almost man-marking Lucas Elrayan for the first 45 minutes. I was trying to figure out for the life of me what was going on. Why is Andres Ricarte not up top alongside Frank Ojada when FC Dallas press? I look a little bit deeper, and I see him watching and moving with Zellerayan as the number 10. And I thought that strategy, that idea of mm. having your number 10 mark someone else's number 10, I'm not sure I've really seen that before. Certainly not in Major League Soccer. I can't recall a time when I've seen an attacking midfielder step deeper into the defense and mark the opposing team's best playmaker. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if it was effective. Zellerayan didn't score or assist in the first half, but I'd have to look closer to see if he was still dominating when he was in zone 14. But the fact that Luchi Gonzalez had his playmaker mark another playmaker was fascinating to me. Well, what's interesting too is I felt like um, because of some of the the injuries and that the Columbus crew have had is they were playing in a 4-3-3. So instead of having the double pivot that they typically have in that first half – it was just our tour as that, that single pivot. And I feel like in the second half, they did look a little bit more comfortable bringing Aiden Morris on and having two, uh, traditional, uh, sixes that they normally play with who are like six eights, right? They, sure. they do get forward. Um, but in that first half, I thought it was, you know, you, you sometimes think, okay, if you invert the triangle and you play with one holding midfielder and two attacking midfielders with Celeron and Santos there, then you create, uh, you can try to create overloads in those spaces. But a lot of the times it was just a 2v2 in that space, right? Because of the two holding midfielders for Dallas. And the, the first half wasn't as fun to watch as the second half, I didn't think. Because in the second half, when you go back to the triangles being opposite of each other with two holding mids on each side and one attacking midfielder, it creates a dynamic where teams have to step and shift and when you do that, then then you can start to manipulate numbers with the way that you play the ball. So I thought, for me, the second half was just more fun to watch because of that. And the first half was a little bit more stagnant because the ball wasn't getting into those playmakers as much, not only because of what you said about Ricarte, but two, the playmakers for the Columbus crew were almost already putting themselves in that man-v-man situation. Jordan, are you ready to talk throw-ins? Oh, yes. Let's do it, Joe. Because, man, it is something else. We hit on the Galaxy to open the show. Then we talked through a much happier talking point, a fun game between FC Dallas and the Columbus crew. Now this is going to be somewhat of a Jordan and Joe rant, I think, but we're going to try to make it as constructive as possible. This was this idea was started out of a text chain between Jordan and myself talking about some of the things we noticed from the weekend and last week as well. And it's all about how Major League Soccer teams are not effective with throwing in the ball. This is not true for every team. This is a generalization. Mm -hmm. But I was watching Orlando City and the New York Red Bulls play on Saturday afternoon. It's the first game of the weekend, right? My hopes are high. My spirits are high. I'm enjoying the soccer. Orlando City are up one to nothing early in the second half, and the Red Bulls have a throw-in in their own defensive third. There's three Red Bulls players and three Orlando City players over on the side of the field by the throw-in. 
Kyle Duncan is throwing the ball in for the Red Bulls. Mandela Egbo is one of the outlets. Florian Velo is the other outlet for the New York Red Bulls. Orlando City, to counteract those three guys, have Chris Mueller, Nani, and Kamal Miller. So it's 3v3. That's fine. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kyle Duncan throws the ball in to Mandela Egbo, and Mueller goes over to pressure it. Mueller knocks the ball loose, and it comes to Florian Velo. If you're the Red Bulls, that's fine. You're off scot-free for losing the initial throw-in from Duncan to Egbo. But then Velo tries to play some sort of no-look side pass that Orlando City eat up, get out on the break, and three passes later, three passes later, they've traveled almost the entire length of the field. Junior Urso is on the ball in the attacking half, and he scores to double Orlando City's lead. That loss of possession on the throw-in essentially lost that game for the Red Bulls. The game ends 3-1 to to Orlando. But because they could not control the ball on the side of the throw-in in the area of the field where Kyle Duncan had the ball ready to put it back into play, that killed their chances of winning in this game. And that's happening to teams across Major League Soccer. Yeah. It's just, it's a hard, it, it just confuses me, throw-ins. Because I think, I don't know the actual number of how many throw-ins there are per game. But if you think and treat them as if they are set pieces... There's a lot of opportunities that you can defend better or attack better from them. And I don't know. I mean, they're not given that same weight, but they should be given some more weight, I think, and put some more attention into de- into the details of, okay, if this goes wrong, where, what do we want to do? Because it, sometimes, even in that example that you just said, wouldn't just kicking the ball out of bounds or trying to send it up higher on the field be a better option than trying to get too cheeky there? Yeah. I mean, it's that's the problem, right? Is not what happens necessarily with the throw-in, but what happens after the ball is thrown in. There's a lack of intensity and a lack of planning of what the Red Bulls are going to do. Because you can separate throw-ins almost into two pieces, right? The first part is the actual throw. Right. And how you're planning to get the ball back into the field of play. That's part number one. Then part number two is what you're doing with the ball after you've ideally secured some sort of temporary possession. So in mm-hmm. this example, that's either with with Egbo or that's with Valo, who's trying to do something with the ball. There's no structure around them for the Red Bulls. And that reminds me of another throw-in issue from last week. Tom and I talked about the Union's win over into Miami last week, and that's the origin of the meat truck on MLS Assist. We talked about <laughs> Mark McKenzie, and now he's not quite that. But right. in that game, we did not talk about the Philadelphia Union's first goal directly. We didn't talk about what led to it. And that is Nico Figal in Miami's own defensive area. He has a throw-in that leads to Anthony Fontana's goal. So he throws the ball in. Figal throws the ball into Victor Ulloa. That part's fine, right? He gets the ball in. That's part number one. Then part number two, though, there's no structure for into Miami. Once Victor Ulloa is on the ball, he has nowhere to go with it. The players are too spread out. He doesn't have time to settle the ball and look around and find a legitimate passing option. So the Union pressure him. They pressure him with Montero. They pressure him with Martinez. One pass later, after the Union win the ball from that pressure, Anthony Fontana has the ball in the back of the net. These two pieces are not being done effectively in big moments. Pairing number one, getting the ball onto the field, and number two, doing something with it once it's there. Okay, let's just talk about that specific example that you just say. So Yoa has the ball, and this is a game... I I haven't watched this game, but Higuain is the number nine for Miami in this game, correct? Correct. Why wouldn't you just say, okay, every time the ball gets thrown in in our defensive third, you're an outlet. So you better be ready for that 
Matt Hedges, route one, play to the center forward from whoever it goes to. So that ball goes to Uyoa and off the, the, the bounce or however it gets to him. I don't know if it went all the way in the air. I can't remember off the top of my head or if it hit his foot right on, which I prefer, right? Like throwing it straight to his foot so he can take a first touch. Off of Uyoa's first or second touch, Iguain has to be prepared saying, no matter where this ball goes next, I'm going to win the ball if it comes forward. So then there's an outlet, right? Like, why play out of that? And, and especially, you know, Philadelphia is has the intentions of high pressing when the ball goes la- uh, laterally or any, any way backwards towards their own goal. You have to provide yourself with the next option. Okay, well, we're not going to let them high press us. We're going to get it higher to Iguain off of that first throw in. Why not treat throw-ins as a set piece? I keep coming back to yeah. that idea. You said it already. Why don't we give them some level of creativity? I get that there are moments where the best thing to do is get the ball back into play immediately, give your team an advantage to run down towards yes. goal. Those moments right. happen. And I'm not saying we should stop all throw-ins, set up some sort of detailed a movement in the attacking half or movement wherever you are on the field to throw the ball in. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there are times where taking an extra second and setting up something and having a clearer understanding as a team of what you're doing to get the ball onto the field and to do something with it once it's there, having mm-hmm. some sort of idea doesn't even have to be a great idea. It can be an okay no. idea, and the defense has, is going to never have seen it before. They're right. not going to have any understanding of what you're doing, and they're going to be lost. You're going to get the ball in. Maybe you can switch the point of attack to the other side. Maybe you can maybe you can switch it from the overload on the strong side to a winger on the weak side, go 1v1 right. at a fullback, and get into the box. This is a wasted opportunity. It's a wasted chance, and it's hurting teams. Well, the other thing I think about that with Joe, Joe is going into this next month is how tired players are going to be. And so if you can tell if you can create plays that then you don't have to actively figure out a solution in the real time. You already know, hey, this is our solution to this. This is how we're going to get out of this. This is a set play. This is, you know, we call the timeout in basketball and we're going to sit on the bench and drawing up a play. So from this, you know, uh, ball in bounds. If you can do something like that and take the decision making out of it, you're then allowing players in those moments when they are tired and mentally fatigued to be able to make the correct decisions. It's not happening right now. And that would make players' lives easier. Yeah, maybe it means a few extra minutes in the film room. But I'd rather sit in the film room for 15 minutes before a game than give up a goal that that loses you the game, (laughs) right? right? I mean, I think every player would make that sacrifice. Absolutely. No, it is. It's infuriating. Who's the team... That made the big signing and was doing, it was a European team. Was it Liverpool? So it's it's a throw-in coach that does contract work almost for a lot of different teams in Europe because clubs have started to realize that this is a wasted opportunity. And in soccer, any time you can give any sort of advantage to your team over other teams, you have to take it. Yeah. So Liverpool are doing that. And Joe, if you if you hate this in MLS, throw-ins don't watch um, youth soccer. Just don't do it. Yeah. Jordan, on to tactical tidbits. We are at the final leg of today's show. I'm going to start with you. You are leading off our tactical tidbits. Go wherever you want. Okay. I watched uh, the most of the New England-Nashville game. A nil-nil game. Not a lot to write home about, but haven't talked a lot about New England, so I wanted to give a little love to them. That's very good. um, I've got a good thing. I've got two good 
small tactical tidbit good things that I like and one thing that I think they can add to their repertoire. So New England's playing in a 4-2-3-1. And one of the things I really like about what they do is the right side. And mind you, in this game, it was Teal Bunbury on the left or starting on the left and Tejon Buchanan on the right as the wingers. And they did switch sides um, during the game. So I prefer Tejon Buchanan with Brandon Bay on the right side because I don't know if you've watched much of Buchanan. He's a nifty little player. Mm-hmm. Like he's smooth and he reads the game well and he'll come inside onto his left foot, but he can get to the end line and be dangerous. There's a lot of upside to him. And I feel like he works w- well with Brandon Bay when New England have possession and they can build up because Bay and him really work off of each other well. They can both play in the channel. They can both play internally and they read each other's movements and the d- defense well to f- pick which one is on in that certain instance. So I really like their fluidity and what they can do. So that kind of goes to. My second point, which is going to be my what can the Revs do better, is I think they need better holding midfielders. If you're going to play in a 4-2-3-1, you need at least one of the two players in that that uh, holding mid spot to be a player who can push the ball forward. And I felt like Caldwell and McNamara play the ball backwards too much. And... It's hard to bring players into the attack when you don't have a holding midfielder who's willing in that maybe first phase of possession when you're getting the ball from your uh, back four, who's not willing to sit on the half turn and play that ball into Lee Wynn, who was the attacking player, or Teal Bumbrary on, on the left channel. Because if you have that type of ball, then you move the defense and then you can get it back and you can add more players into the attack with those outside backs. So I just think that it doesn't have to be both. Like, I think they, they did fine, Caldwell and McNamara, but I think you need, if you can switch one of them for a little bit more of an offensive minded player in that spot would really help them, um, be more, a little bit more distinct with what they're trying to do going into the attacking half. I think the Revs brought in Matt Polster from Scotland to try to do that in in their midfield as half of the double pivot. He's out right now with an injury. But mm-hmm. I agree with that general point as, yeah. as not even just with the double pivot, but as a team-wide thing. I think the Revs need more talent to actually compete in Major League Soccer at this point. I don't think their roster outside of a few high-profile attacking players, Carles Hill is out for the rest of the season with an injury. Gustavo Bo is a talented player who sometimes makes poor decisions moving forward. I mean, they have mm-hmm. a few pieces, but they need yeah. more talent overall. So that's my brief interjection into that point. Right, right. Okay, so the last thing I liked about New England, and then I'll throw it to you, is um, Dwan Jones left outside back. It, when New England would have the ball in there getting into their attacking half and they start to build the ball up, uh, usually with Bai and Buchanan on the right side, when they switch the point of attack quickly, I felt like... Jones's best place is when he's in that internal channel dribbling at the back line right on the outskirts of that midfield line for the defense. And he when he would drive there and get the ball at his feet and dribble at defenders, then it opens 
things up. So for me, that's one of the things that you're just saying. Can they get somebody on the left wing who is good at 1v1 situations? So then when Jones drives and dribbles off that switch a point of attack and draws players in, you can isolate a player in the channel and then you have numbers in the attack. You have numbers in this in a good spot where if that winger can beat the player and provide a good pass or a good cross, you're getting opportunities on goal. You brought up Dewan Jones just to make me feel bad for saying that Milton Valenzuela and Brian Reynolds were my two fullbacks in MLS, my two favorite <laughs> fullbacks in MLS, didn't you? I don't know. I love Dewan Jones. Yeah, he he. I liked that. I think that that's kind of his his sweet spot because he can pass out of that position, and I like him um, in that internal channel. Dewan, you were my left back for the Lowry Angeli draft that happened during the <laughs> during the coronavirus pause for major league soccer so i will always yes. appreciate you yes and respect that's you. true okay i love that my tactical tidbit from this week is on minnesota united and their two nothing win over fc cincinnati minnesota united are exactly who adrian heath wants them to be mm-hmm. a defensive team that's hard to beat and obviously take all this with a grain of salt fc cincinnati haven't scored a goal since 1912 but Minnesota United are a difficult team to break down defensively. The way they shift from attacking to defending in a split second makes them, I think that gives them a little bit of a boost and edge compared to a lot of other teams in MLS. So let me, let me explain this, okay. in this moment that I'm thinking about. There's a moment, and this leads to their first goal of the game. They get the opening goal from Akai Kamara penalty kick. The penalty is earned by Chase Gasper off of some truly impressive defensive pressure from Minnesota United. So it starts when they have the ball. Hassani Dotson is on the ball in midfield in possession from Minnesota United. He overhits a pass out of the midfield and gives possession to FC Cincinnati. That's fine, though. That's, it's, like, it's almost like a Red Bullion kind of thing. That's fine for Minnesota United. They're content to use that moment when Cincinnati aren't quite organized to press them and to get the ball back. So as as the ball is turned over, Minnesota United immediately go to press. They shift from an offensive mentality to a defensive one in a split second. Gregush pushes high out of midfield to help win the ball. They funnel the ball over to Cincinnati's right side where Reynoso and Chase Gasper press, win the ball back. Gasper gets fouled in the box. Kai Kamar scores the penalty. Minnesota United are up one to nothing. That shift, that mental shift and that tactical idea of how Minnesota United under Adrian Heath want to play is so evident when you watch them. They've had mixed results recently. I get that. But I cannot count out Minnesota United, especially when they've got Kevin Molino ready to come off the bench to partner with Reynoso and grab that second goal like they did in this game. They're so hard to beat. Those two have, they're really fun to watch. Yeah. Reynoso and Molino. Yeah. They really read each other well. Add that reading of each other and understanding of each other to a solid defensive foundation. I mean, Minnesota United, I would not want to play Minnesota United in the playoffs. I'll just put it that way. Mm. That's a good point. Okay, Jordan, you got one more tactical tidbit for us? Should we talk LAFC RSL since it was the last game of the weekend? Beautiful. Okay, something so small here. One of the things that I felt like in the last few games, what we've seen of LAFC and we've talked about how they were flying with confidence for a long time when they didn't have confidence. You could start to sense how how easy it is for a team to be to be something totally different than what we've known them to be. One of the things that I felt like is LAFC and I'd have to go and really dig into the numbers, but I feel like they 
complete less passes than they typically were doing last year. And I feel like it's all about their positioning on the field, that they're a little bit more spread out, and especially in the center of midfield. Therefore, they don't get all those little interconnected passes that they that we typically are used to them seeing. Am I wrong in saying that? I think Do you feel fair. like it is a little bit more spaced out? Sure. So then that, that leads me to, okay, they've been vulnerable in transition. Well, it goes to what you were saying from Minnesota United is because they had so many numbers around the ball and they were playing these small intricate passes and um, really w- digging in and uh, overloading spaces with their numbers that when they lost the ball... They could transition quickly, put pressure on the ball. And that that outlet ball that we are now seeing them being vulnerable with, that RSL did a good job of that by just sending Martinez. And once they won the ball, they're just playing it long and trying to see if he can run into space. But before, LAFC had so many numbers around the ball that that ball to play it long wasn't even on because you could you had someone in your face blocking you. So I think LAFC has to figure out a way to get a little bit more condensed, which is weird, in the way that they're attacking because they really seem to find their fluidity best when they are in those tight little passing lanes, tight little uh, spaces where they can overload the numbers. The the idea of attacking, but not just attacking to attack, but also attacking to defend mm-hmm. at times. Yes. All the phases of play are, are linked together, right? Attacking is linked to offensive transitions and defensive transitions and defending they're all connected it's like a a giant circle with arrows around so you can't separate those phases of play from each other and not give any attention to the other three phases while you're in just one phase and lafc had that i think they're slowly maintaining that they're slowly establishing more defensive solidity they beat rsl three to one in the last game of the weekend as as you mentioned in the lead up to this talking point Mm -hmm. but LAFC are slowly getting there and they need to fully understand that those those ideas are connected. Yeah. My last thing about um, is going to be about RSL. I like Herrera and I'm I'm unconvinced about Herrera outside back, right outside back for RSL. Defensively, I don't know yet. Going forward, he's a very good decision maker on the ball. He picks the right pass. He typically has the right weight on his pass and When, if and when it doesn't connect, it's not that it was a poor pass from him. It was a bad first touch by the person who is receiving it. I think it was Martinez, the Herrera is dribbling down the right side and he's playing this ball with his instep on his right foot through this passing lane into the attacking center, center forward. And it's a hard pass to make, so I think Martinez isn't quite ready for it. But I, I like the decision-making from Herrera, and I think that there, there's a lot of upside to him. Jordan, we did it. We recapped a lot of the Major League Soccer action from this past weekend. It was great to have you back. I'm glad your voice is doing better. I'm glad we could analyze some of this stuff. Thank you for joining me, as always. That was really fun. Thanks, Joe. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week.